What do weasel testicles and wool tampons have to do with medieval women's health? Find out this week on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, Today on the podcast, I want to talk about one of my favorite topics, medieval gynecology. And yes, this is one of my favorite topics. Uh, However, before we get started, uh, there are a couple things that I want to mention. The first is that the podcasting app Radio Public asked our very own assistant producer, Christine, to curate a playlist for them, and that list, Overlooked Lives in World History, will be appearing on their app uh, this week, I think sometime after Valentine's Day. So... Uh, download the app on either the iTunes or Google Play stores and give it a listen. Speaking of iTunes, while we rarely talk about it, the ratings and comments you leave for us there mean a lot to us. And so if you have a free moment, pop on over to the iTunes store and let us know you're listening. We'd love to hear from you. The final bit of business I need to mention is that for the first time in the history of the podcast, I need to issue a parental guidance warning. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing certain aspects of human anatomy and sexuality in pretty frank terms. Uh, Some of the content might not be suitable for very young audiences. Uh, Just a heads up. Uh, Also, I'm going to be reading sections of a medieval medical text that offers some interesting solutions to certain female health problems. Please note that footnoting history does not promote or endorse you actually trying any of these remedies, and uh, we encourage you to visit a doctor should you be suffering from any of these ailments. So, with that said, on with the episode. One of the areas of historical study that I find most fascinating is medical history. It seems somewhat strange that the human body was, for much of recorded human history, a bit of an enigma. It's only in the last 500 years or so that we've come to truly understand the inner workings of our own bodies, and even now, there are still a lot of things about the human body that we still don't fully understand, um, particularly things about, for instance, the human brain. But along with that deepened understanding of the workings of the body came more effective forms of healthcare and diseases or dysfunctions that to us today seem relatively minor or easily treatable were once seen as life-threatening. Imagine, though, that you were a woman living in, say, 12th century Italy, and you were suffering from an irregular period, accompanied by cramps, bloating, and fatigue. Today, you might be prescribed a birth control pill to regulate your cycle and a pain reliever to help alleviate your symptoms. But in the 12th century, those options aren't available to you. Some symptoms can be lived with for a time, but after a while, even the strongest person reaches a point where she will do nearly anything just to make the pain and the discomfort go away. Our imaginary woman lived in a world that understood her body in a very different way than you and I would. Much of medieval medical theory, especially after the rise of universities in the 12th and 13th centuries, was based on the works of ancient authors. The dominant theory of disease and dysfunction in this period was one of imbalance. The ancient Greek author Empedocles first articulated the theory of the four elements in the 5th century BC. Uh, This was the idea that all matter in the cosmos is made up of some combination of four component parts, earth, air, water, and fire. Building off this idea, about mm, a century or so later, uh, the physician Hippocrates, or people writing later pretending to be Hippocrates, 
proposed the idea that the human body was governed by the balance of four fluids, or humors, in the body, each of which corresponded to one of the four elements and was manufactured in the body by a different organ. There was, first, black bile, which corresponded with earth and was made by the gallbladder. Blood, corresponding to air, was believed to be created in the liver. Yellow bile, associated with fire, was made by the spleen, and phlegm, the humor of water, was made by the lungs. According to the humoric theory, most human illness was caused by an imbalance of the humors, and so the role of medicine was to restore that equilibrium. Incidentally, humors were also believed to govern personality. If, for example, you were governed by blood, you were said to be sanguine, very positive and optimistic. But if yellow bile, or collar, dominated, you were choleric and quick-tempered. A phlegmatic person, obviously ruled by phlegm, uh, was laid back and very sort of go with the flow, while someone of black bile was melancholic, uh, pensive, and sad. If these sound familiar, that's because this idea of humors regulating personality crops up over and over again in literature. Uh, for example, they are the four houses in Harry Potter. Gryffindor is sanguine, Slytherin is choleric, Hufflepuff phlegmatic, and Ravenclaw melancholic. The other ancient author most central to medieval medicine was Galen of Pergamon. Uh, Galen was a Greco-Roman physician who lived in the late 2nd, early 3rd centuries AD, and he built on the Hippocratic theory of medicine, particularly as he articulated how the various parts of the human body functioned, especially, for our topic today, the function of the uterus. There were, of course, many other texts of medicine that came out of the ancient world, but few were held to the same reverence as Galen and Hippocrates. Following the collapse of the Roman Empire, many of these ancient Greek texts were either lost or stopped being copied in Western Europe. They were, however, transcribed into Arabic and preserved that way. Beginning in the 11th and 12th centuries, increased contact and intellectual exchange with the Muslim world meant that these texts were translated into Latin and re-entered the Western medical tradition. And nowhere was this more true than in the town of Salerno, some 10 miles just south of Naples on the coast of Italy. Salerno lay in a part of Italy that had been under Muslim control until the Norman conquest of southern Italy in the late 11th century. It also boasted a substantial Jewish community. By the 12th century, Salerno had become known for its medical schools, and Salernitan medicine reflected not only the Latin and Greek traditions, but also shows signs of contact with Arabic and Jewish medical traditions as well. Perhaps the best example of this is in the most famous of the medieval medical texts to come out of Salerno, the Trotula. Named for a female healer named Trota, the Trotula, or Little Trota, is one of the few medieval medical texts that exclusively deals with women's health issues. Other texts do talk about women's diseases, uh, but only as a small part of the text. Trota probably did not, in fact, write the entire Trotula. Most of the authors were probably male, uh, but there seem to be some indications of female authorship in the text, and at least one of the sections seems to bear the hallmarks of having originally been written by a woman. Uh, which brings up an interesting question. For whom, then, is the Trotula written? In the Middle Ages, there were a wide range of what we might term medical practitioners. The most educated of these would be physicians, who usually had some sort of formal education at a school or university. Surgeons, on the other hand, tended to be more hands-on, and while they may have had some education, you would be more likely to go to a surgeon to have, say, a wound stitched or a broken arm set. 
And then there were a wide range of healers, herbalists, apothecaries, and midwives whose level of education is a little harder to deduce. While it may be tempting to assume that women only occupied the bottom rung of this hierarchy as herbalists, midwives, healers, and apothecaries, uh, it would be a mistake. There are female physicians in medieval sources, though their numbers are admittedly small, probably only maybe 1-2% of all physicians, and that number is kind of high, so most of Trotula's audience would probably have been male. The Trotula is actually three separate texts collected together. The first two, on the conditions of women and on treatments for women, are largely practical texts that cover a wide range of issues. There are a couple of recurring themes in the text. One recurring issue is the concept of the retention of the menses, or an irregular period. In the Hippocratic and Galenic traditions, most female health problems arose from issues of waste purgation. It was believed that men and women were fundamentally different in their composition. Men were literally warmer and women colder. As a result, men could more efficiently digest the food that passed through their bodies, and men were able to get rid of the food waste, not just through urination and defecation, but also through perspiration, body hair, and nocturnal emissions. To the medieval mind, these are simply uh, the human body getting rid of excess matter. Since women were colder and did not process their food as well, uh, and did not sweat as much or have as much body hair, uh, they had to find another way of getting rid of their excess waste. And this is where menstruation comes in. Periods were the body's way, in the medieval mind, of purging itself of excess material that the body is unable to digest or process, or otherwise excrete. This also explained why women stopped getting their period when they were pregnant, or for a few months after giving birth. The idea was that during the pregnancy, that excess material feeds the fetus in the womb, and following birth, it's then converted into milk in the breasts for a month or two. If, however, a woman was not pregnant or breastfeeding, an irregular period was considered a grave illness, because it meant that her body was not purging itself of the excess waste material. Occasionally, the body would, according to the medieval texts, uh, try to get rid of the waste through other means, like a nosebleed or hemorrhoids, uh, or in the urine or in the stool. To answer this problem, the Trotula first recommends drawing off the excess material in the form of blood through a small incision in the foot. If that does not work, a diuretic should be consumed, like wild celery, fennel, cumin, caraway, or parsley, uh, mixed with wine and honey. Various herbal powders, like yellow flag, castorium, mugwort, and sage, these could also be consumed. Should none of these, or several other remedies, work, uh, the Trotula then offers a rather extreme solution, and uh, I should note that here and elsewhere I'm reading from the translation of the Trotula by historian Monica Green. Quote, But if the womb becomes so indurated that with these aids the menses are not able to be drawn out, take gall of a bull, or another gall, or powder of natron, uh, natron is a dried mineral salt, and let them be mixed with juice of wild celery or hyssop, and let carded wool be dipped therein, and let it be pressed so that it is hard and rigid and long, so that it can be put into the vagina, and let it be inserted. Ouch. Uh, wool tampons aside, this kind of multi-option remedy is actually fairly common in both the Trotula and medieval medical practice in general. 
Uh, many herbs were regionally based or, or not widely available, and so the solution was to work with what you have, and it was common, therefore, for medical recipes to list various optional ingredients that could be switched out based on availability. Another major ailment that receives a great deal of attention in the text is the phenomenon of the wandering womb. This is an idea coming straight out of Galenic text and was based in the concept that because women are not only cold-natured, but also prone to being less moist than men, this can have an effect on the uterus, which the Greeks thought had something of a mind of its own. If the woman suffered from shortness of breath, lack of appetite, cramps, bloating, vaginal dryness, or any other host of symptoms, uh, the problem may be that her uterus, seeking warmth and moisture, is pressing up against her internal organs in search for them. The fastest and first solution to this problem was actually for her to have sex, the logic being that semen is warm and moist and will therefore serve to draw the uterus back into its proper place. Care must be taken, however, that the semen was not corrupt, as the woman's body may convert it to poison and it could cause further health problems. If sex was either not desirable nor an option, uh, she may instead have her feet and vagina anointed with pleasant-smelling oils, which will serve to coax the womb back into place. Additional treatments include a number of oral remedies, such as drinking a mixture of ground agaric, plantain seed, and savory seed mixed with wine and honey. On the other hand, if the woman is suffering not from a uterus pressing upward, but instead pressing downward, and she has suffered a vaginal prolapse, among the potential remedies is to take boxwood and burn it and create a kind of smoke bath. The woman should then sit over a stool with a hole in the bottom and allow the smoke to drift up into her vagina. She may also spend some time smelling sweet odors, the idea being that by placing pleasant smells toward the upper part of her body, the uterus will be lured back towards them, uh, thus relieving the prolapse. The final major theme of the first two books of the Trotula is fertility and pregnancy, both preventing it and promoting it, as well as pre- and postnatal care. If a couple is having trouble conceiving, the trotula is very clear about the causes and how to go about determining which party is responsible. Quote, there are some women who are useless for conception, either because they are too lean and thin, or because they are too fat and flesh surrounding the orifice of the womb constricts it, and it does not permit the seed of the man to enter into the womb. Some women have a womb that is so slippery and smooth that the seed, once it has been received, is not able to be retained inside. Sometimes this also happens by fault of the man, who has excessively thin seed, which, when poured into the womb because of its liquidity, slips outside. Some men, indeed, have extremely cold and dry testicles. These men rarely or never generate because their seed is useless for generation. And so then the treatment. If a woman remains barren by fault of the man or herself, it will be perceived in this manner. Take two pots, and in each one place wheat bran and some of the man's urine in one of them with the bran, and in the other put some of the urine of the woman with the rest of the bran, and let the pot sit for nine or ten days. If the infertility is the fault of the woman, you will find many worms in her pot, and the bran will stink. You will find the same thing in the other pot if it is the man's fault. And if you find this in neither, then in neither is there any defect, and they are able to be aided by the benefit of medicine so that they might conceive." On the other hand, if you wanted to avoid getting pregnant, the Trotula here offers solutions as well. Quote, 
If a woman does not wish to conceive, let her carry against her nude flesh the womb of a goat which has never had offspring. Or if there is found a certain stone called Gagates, which, if it is held by the woman or even tasted, prohibits conception. In another fashion, take a male weasel and let its testicles be removed and let it be released alive. Let the woman carry these testicles with her in her bosom and let her tie them in goose skin or in another skin and she will not conceive. If she has been badly torn in birth and afterward for fear of death does not wish to conceive any more, let her put into the afterbirth as many grains of caper spurge or barley as the number of years she wishes to remain barren. And if she wishes to remain barren forever, let her put in a handful. In terms of pregnancy itself, the text describes the signs of pregnancy, how to tell whether the unborn child is male or female, uh, what to do if a baby is breech or stillborn, and what to do if she does not pass the afterbirth immediately following the delivery, as well as uh, sort of postnatal care for infants. The second book on treatments for women also has a variety of recipes for miscellaneous conditions like bedwetting, lice, scabies, dysentery, halitosis, warts, uh, testicular and penile swelling, and hemorrhoids. Particularly interesting is an entire set of recipes designed to constrict the cervical canal to give a woman the appearance of being a virgin, either to please her partner or to deceive him into thinking that she had never engaged in intercourse. At one point, the author outright condemns certain, quote, dirty and corrupt prostitutes, end quote, for applying extreme constrictive remedies that injure both themselves and their partners. If constriction is your goal, though, the Trotula recommends, among other things, placing in the vagina a cloth soaked in rainwater in which the bark of a particular kind of oak tree has been dissolved, and to remove it an hour before intercourse. However, if none of this is working for you and you really want to convince your partner that you are in fact a virgin and your hymen is intact, perhaps the most drastic option is the final solution in this section. Quote, what is better is if the following is done one night before she is married. Let her place leeches in the vagina, but take care that they do not go in too far so that blood comes out and is converted into a little clot, and thus the man will be deceived by the effusion of blood." End quote. The third book of the Trotula on women's cosmetics also contains herbal and mineral recipes, though these are for such things as softening the skin, getting rid of unwanted body hair using quicklime, on various recipes for hair dyeing. For instance, if you wanted to have black hair, uh, the Trotula suggests taking a green lizard and having removed its head and tail, cook it in common oil. Anoint the head with this oil, it makes the hair long and black. Uh, this is then immediately followed by a Saracen preparation, meaning Arabic, uh, which involves boiling a pomegranate rind in vinegar or water, adding the powder of oak apples and alum, and wrapping the hair before then sprinkling it with oil and bran. Uh, this too is supposed to turn the hair black, and I have actually found online where someone has attempted this. It did not turn the hair black, but it did change the hair's color. Uh, there are numerous recipes for whitening the face, several of which involve the use of white lead, a common ingredient in many pre-modern makeups. So, what are we to make of all of this? Every semester that I teach my medieval history survey course, I make my students read part of the Trotula. And every semester, without fail, someone will ask me at the beginning of class, did people actually think that this stuff worked? 
because, well, it is easy from the vantage point of modern 21st century medicine to look down our noses at the past and call these treatments barbaric and unsophisticated. But I think that there are several points to consider here. The first is that these texts were, for their time, quite sophisticated. The Trotula represents both the emergence of a new centralized, what will become university culture, uh, and the confluence of several different medical traditions. It's also in discourse with those traditions, affirming some while criticizing others. The herbal remedies were probably sometimes theoretical, as certain herbs were associated with certain elements or humors, but they could have also been based in medical practice. They represented a specific way of thinking about the world and its order, one which viewed disease not as the result of an agent, germ, or genetic aberration, but an imbalance in the natural equilibrium. Above all else, as I said at the top of the show, pain and discomfort will drive even the strongest of persons to pursue a drastic remedy. And to give you an example from my own life, I have a kind of dermatitis that gives me sort of dry, flaky skin in a large spot on the back of my scalp. Now, I've been going to a dermatologist for years, and I've got a medicine that I have to put on at least once a week to keep it in check, but I'll probably always have this problem. About five years ago, I was in my first year of living in France doing research for my dissertation uh, when I ran out of my meds. Now, I could and should have just gone to the doctor there in France, but I was alone in a foreign country and didn't really know how to go about finding a doctor, getting prescription refilled, and doing it all in French, which I spoke but didn't feel super confident about having an extended conversation about my health in it. Besides, I was coming back to the United States in a few months, and I could just get my script refilled then. What can I say? I was young and stupid. Pretty soon, of course, the itching began, and it just wouldn't stop. And then there was the flaking, and that was embarrassing. So like all good sick Americans, I turned to the internet, where I found message board after message board, website upon website, telling me that I didn't need a topical steroid. Those were terrible for you. No. I just needed to put some apple cider vinegar on my hair several times a day. When that didn't work, it was olive oil. Uh, one place even suggested dousing your head with Listerine. Uh, another site told me unequivocally that the condition was caused by a candida overgrowth and that I needed to go on a two-month dietary purge of all sugars and foods that could feed the candida. This included eliminating all breads, alcohols, and cheeses. I was living in France. Those are the three major food groups. Yeah, that diet, which consisted of lots of celery, carrots, and hummus, uh, that lasted about three days. Anyway, the point in all of this is that when you do not have access, or refuse access, stupidly, to medical care, things can get desperate. And before you know it, you find yourself pouring mouthwash on your head in the shower, thinking, how exactly did I end up here? The other point of this story is that in our own day, we have an entire branch of alternative homeopathic remedies and treatments that are not that far removed from the practices suggested in the Trotula. Case in point, last year, actress Gwyneth Paltrow raved on her lifestyle website, Goop, about the benefits of vaginal steaming, a process very similar to the smoke and stool remedy of the Trotula that even uses mugwort, one of the more common ingredients in the Trotula's recipes. Even more recently, her website has extolled the virtues of inserting jade eggs into the vagina, saying that, quote, regular use increases chi, orgasms, vaginal muscle tone, hormonal imbalance, and feminine energy in general.
end quote. What I'm trying to say is that medical treatment is always changing and developing, and the way we look at medical history tells us not just how people view disease, but also what that view reveals about the society as a whole. The Trotula says in its introduction that part of the rationale for its composition was that medieval women were often afraid to go to a physician with their illnesses, presumably because the physician was usually male and gynecological problems are very intimate. The medieval understanding of women's bodies was also bound up in the idea that women were in many ways inferior to men. The entire concept of menstruation was predicated upon the notion that women could not digest their food as well as men and needed a mechanism to purge themselves of the excess waste. Women's sexuality was so carefully controlled that if a woman was not a virgin at the time of her marriage, it was a sign of shame and dishonor, and so women felt compelled to find some way of demonstrating that they had not broken this social taboo. The trotula operates from these preconceptions, yes, but it's important to remember that the trotula also comes from a place of compassion for suffering. In the text introduction, the author writes, quote, Therefore, their misfortune, which ought to be pitied, and especially the influence of a certain woman stirring my heart, have impelled me to give a clear explanation regarding their diseases in caring for their health. And so, with God's help, I have labored assiduously to gather in excerpts the more worthy parts of the books of Hippocrates and Galen, so that I might explain and discuss the causes of their diseases, their symptoms, and their cures. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.